So what I want to do this morning is I would like to invite you to start with just a little bit of a thought experiment, okay? Imagine, for a moment, just try to envision if this world and all of creation was perfect. Try to envision what this world would look like if it was exactly the way that it's supposed to be. How, how would humans be create, create, excuse me, treating creation? How would humans be uh, working with the resources that we've been given? How would humans be treating the animals? In this moment of just kind of envisioning, how would humans treat one another? You know, what would the, the poor and the rich act like in this world? Let me ask some sensitive questions for all of us. What would relationships look like between men and women in the public workplaces, in politics, in leadership? What would race relations look like in a perfect world? Just try to envision that. Just really let your mind go and think, what would race relations look like if everything was as it's supposed to be? What would politics look like? What would national relations look like? And now let me ask you a very pointed question. As we're envisioning this world of perfection and the way that things ought to be, what would be your contribution to this world? How would you act in a world that was made right? What would your role and responsibility, your words and your ways, what would they be in a perfected world? So as you let that sink in and you have these different moments of imagination and envisioning and thinking and considering, know that the various facets that are moving through your mind of this utopian vision that we're casting this morning, each of those are only a fuzzy glimpse of Jesus Christ's ultimate vision for all of the world. What Jesus intends for the world, whether we believe it fully or not, is really what every human being on this planet wants. The ancient Hebrews, they had a word that captured this deep longing in all of humanity. It was the word shalom. Can you guys say that with me? Shalom. Shalom. Isn't that nice? Shalom. I love saying the word shalom. And it roughly translates wholeness or completeness. All of the ancient Hebrew prophets, they looked forward to the day when God's kingdom His authority, his order, his way would reign fully over all of creation and all of creation and all of humanity and all of the animals and all that exists would come into perfect harmony, into wholeness, completeness, into shalom. Jesus of Nazareth, as a Jewish sage, he emphasized, highlighted this ache that we all have for wholeness through his life, through his ministry. And the primary theme of Jesus' teachings was the kingdom of God. It's what he talked about more than anything else. And when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he wasn't just pointing forward to this idyllic realm as a future possibility. Jesus heralded his life and his miracles and his works and his words. Jesus pointed to his death and his resurrection, saying that they were the catalyzing events initiating, that is, beginning the reign of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, he did that in the present moment, partially, and we look forward to when that day will come in full. And Jesus unapologetically declared himself to be the king of the kingdom. He claimed to be the fulfillment of our deepest longings, 
and the only one who could bring true shalom to the world. What is that? What is that noise out there? Do you guys hear that? Do you guys see what that is? Once I know what it is, my brain will quit latching onto it. I'm sorry. Oh, it's a dumpster. Okay. Now that we all know it's a dumpster, I know it's a dumpster. Let's move forward. Shalom, harmony, peace. So the terrible difficulty, the terrible difficulty with Jesus' declarations and his teachings was that he, he, without equivocation, that means he didn't fudge, he didn't hedge about this. He left all of humanity only one of two choices. That is, we could submit to him and his prescriptions for human flourishing and find shalom and experience shalom in his kingdom or the only other choice that Jesus left for all of humanity was to reject him and try to build our own kingdom and try to create shalom in our own power. And that really is the crux of sin. Sin is not just disobeying some rules that this cosmic kind of grumpy killjoy laid down upon humanity. And sin is more than just failing to be perfect. Sin is creating our own kingdoms. Sin is the creation of shalom in our own power, creating our own kingdom with us as kings and queens on our own thrones. And New Testament scholar Don Carson, he actually says, sin is the dethroning of God. Sin is the dethroning of God. And so we humans, we want shalom, but we want it on our own terms. And we want the kingdom, but without the true king. And that's why our hearts and this world is so broken. 7.7 billion people are each committed to their own personal shalom projects. And so each individual kingdom tramples over the other individual kingdoms in this mad pursuit for wholeness. And what happens is we are abused and we abused. We, we oppress and we are oppressed. We use and we are used. So to fabricate shalom, we choose for ourselves what we consider to be right and wrong according to just what our feelings are rather than by God's kingdom revelations. We all fall prey to that original lie that truth is relative and fluid and ever-changing instead of ultimate and objective and fixed. We create for ourselves in this creation of pseudo-shalom, we create definitions of good and evil that are subjective and always changing rather than objective and permanent. And the Apostle Paul, in his great book to the Roman church, said in summarizing all of this that they exchanged, meaning all of us, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And so what God intended to be whole in his creation and integrated all throughout it is disintegrated and cast into chaos. And of course, the final fruit born out of this self-producing, in our own power creating, personal kingdom building, the literal fruit born out of that is physical death for all of us. Now, with that black backdrop, there's this incredibly good news that we have as followers of Jesus. The gospel authors in the New Testament, they reveal that God has this radical renewal project. God's intent is to recreate every human in the image of the perfect human, his son, Jesus. And so with every person that turns to Jesus as the answer, 
God's shalom-renewing, kingdom-multiplying project advances against the gates of hell, and it slowly spreads. The kingdom of God, one person at a time, slowly spreads like a healing balm on a wounded world until the glory of the Lord covers the earth like waters cover the seas. Every time we choose to align with God, every time in our day-in, day-out lives, when we say, I'm going to agree with God's definition right now of good and evil, right now in this moment, I'm going to submit to God's standard of truth, we, the church, strengthen the edifices of God's kingdom in our world. And so the vision of Neighbors Church and our family of churches that we're a part of is to see God's kingdom in San Diego as it is in heaven. So by being with Jesus, we become like Jesus. So much more on this in the coming months and years. In becoming like Jesus, we go forth and do what Jesus did in the world. And the church, we apprentices of Jesus, we multiply shalom throughout humanity as we practice the way of our king in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. And I want to ask the crucial question. How do we do this practically? How do we multiply shalom? How do we practically build God's kingdom into this world? What are the most important things, especially as a brand new church plant? As every week there will be new faces, new friends, new emphasis, new mission, new vision, all sorts of stuff that can just move all around us. What are we supposed to emphasize as followers of Jesus for the sake of multiplying shalom in this world? Is it care for the poor? Is it racial reconciliation? Maybe we should emphasize in this day and age sexual purity. What about defending life in the womb? Do we create a Christian commune out of neighbor's church and run off to the hills out here in Julian? And, and, and just kind of weather the storm of what's coming for our society and our culture? Or do we intentionally call people to go into academia and media and politics so that you have Christian elites and there's a trickle-down effect societally from the elites of society to the middle and the lower classes? Now, Jesus, he was asked this question, though, for nefarious reasons. There were the religious elites of his days, and they were trying to stump Jesus. They were trying to embarrass him and, and create questions about his integrity and his authority. And so the religious elites come to Jesus, and they essentially ask him, what, Jesus, according to you, great teacher, is the most important command in all of the Bible? What are we supposed to emphasize, Jesus, you great rabbi? And Jesus doesn't even wince. He doesn't squirm under their testing Rather, he summarizes the entirety, the whole complex of all of biblical theology, of all of creative history, into two single commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This, he says, is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Love God. Love neighbor. And so the foundation of practically, concretely, actually multiplying shalom into this world, the foundation, the means to all of it, the nuclear furnace that drives it, is what Jesus called love. Love. Agape in our New Testament. Love. Love is what will transform us internally. Love is what compels us to go forward into the world. Love is what strengthens us when opposition comes against us. And love is what sustains us unto the end. And without love, we are lost and God's kingdom project is compromised. 
by our lack of love. So we need to talk about love here for just a moment. Our society wants to say, it's all about love. Why can't we just love each other? Love is love. Love wins. We have to ask this crucial question. How do we define love? When Jesus says, love God, love neighbor, what exactly does he mean by those words? Is he referring to the same love that we all have for chocolate cake? Is he referring to the love that we have for the Seattle Seahawks? Is he refer- what is he talking about? What does he mean? Because culturally, we have so deformed love because of our brokenness and our dethronement of God. Culturally, around us, love essentially equals an emotional experience of intense affection and overwhelming desire for something. That's what love equals in our society. Love is experienced in our society by getting something. It may be, I love you so much, I need sexual gratification from you. I love you because when I'm around you, I feel accepted and I'm getting acceptance from you. I love you because when I'm around you, I have fun. I love you because when I'm around you, I have friends of higher status than myself and so I gain something from you. Love societally is gaining something from another. It's a desire we experience to have with that other. And so love that is out of harmony with God is really more just like intense desire. Our broken love is more like lust. And it is often more often than not, focused on self. Our love is self-serving. And unintentionally and sometimes intentionally, our love, our broken love, sacrifices the other for the sake of our own personal flourishing. And so our broken and malformed love actually takes. Now, I'm speaking in broad generalities this mor- generalities to make a point this morning. Of course, there is a spectrum. Every single one of us as image bearers We have the imprints of God's love on us. It echoes out of our deeps. But even our most selfless, sacrificial love is imperfect. So you mama bears in here this morning, or yeah, this morning, you were up at 3 o'clock this morning changing diapers and trying to get the baby to go back to sleep, and you were selflessly loving, doting on and adoring with perfect patience and joy that you were up at 3 o'clock this morning. No. Our love, though selfless in some measure, is always tainted with exhaustion and severe frustration. We can selflessly love our friends and our colleagues as they succeed and as as their platform grows and we find them getting the promotion and we're watching, we're saying, yes, cigars and beers, celebration. But deep underneath there, that monster of envy is lurking and breaking and sickening our bones. It's just always there. And so we humans, we want to love, but our dethronement of God has blemished all of it. Now God's love and God's vision of love, it is whole and it is complete and it is actually perfect. Shalom multiplying, kingdom building love, it's in a category all its own. God's love is expressed by an intentional decision to always act for you, to always act for the other, for the highest good, for their highest good, even even his enemies, God's love is expressed by acting for their ultimate good at cost to himself. Therefore, shalom multiplying, kingdom-building love like God intentionally focuses on the other, even sacrificing our self-comforts, our self-desires, our self-dreams, even our very selves for the sake of the other's well-being. Jesus embodied love in John 13. 
when he took up a servant's towel and he washed the feet of the very friends who were about to betray him, saying, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus commanded in John 15, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's own friends. If you're familiar with the Bible, if you've been raised in the church, it's easy to read a passage like that and say, thank you, Jesus, that you laid down your life for me and not even recognize that he was calling us to lay down our lives in same measure for the other. God's sourced love actually rejoices in bringing joy to the other. The bigger the smile on the friend's face, the bigger our smile because of their great grace and blessing. It's impossibly difficult. God's source love thrives on increasing human flourishing for everyone, not only ourselves, not only our group, but for everyone. And God's source love, as best as it can, seeks to deny self for the sake of the other. And in that process, though always imperfectly, when we live into and out of God's sourced love, it multiplies and embodies shalom in each of our respective spheres of influence. The key to loving with God's love is not gritting our teeth, tightening up our belt, strapping on the boots and saying, I'm going to love like God loves. We're too broken. We're too incapable. We're too turned inwardly. Our love is too malformed. It's in a dark place and we need light to guide us out. And so the key to loving with God's love is found in Jesus's repeated phrase. He said this phrase to his apprentices over and over. Did you note it? He said, as I have loved you, as I have loved you. The key to loving with God's love is to know and experience God's love for you personally. This is why, and if you're new here, I, I highly recommend you go back and listen to our first five sermons on the podcast or on the website. I walked us through our values of stillness and simplicity and spirit, where we as a community are intentionally choosing to simplify our lives, to slow down for the sake of knowing and experiencing ourselves as loved by God. I like to say that we have to slow down and get still enough to where our intellectual head beliefs, when Jesus says, as I have loved you, gets into your bodies and love casts out fear and calms anxiety. That we take the big theological ideas that there's a sovereign God who created everything and we let that get into our biology so it calms our angst and washes us clean of our envy and produces contentment. Stillness, simplicity, silence, these things, these practices of community and scripture meditation and fasting and feasting and Sabbath keeping, all of these things, they are all means, they are all practices, they are all things that we engage in so that we can have the words of Jesus, as I have loved you, as I have loved you, go deep into our souls and overflow out of us. And I, I hesitated to say this, it came to me this morning, but I would say, don't venture forth into this world after a sermon like this to do God's work, to multiply shalom until you've had that deep moment of I am so loved because you're just going to be working your tail off for nothing. The overflow of God's love is what produces this love that we can go into the world and love the world with. We love out of our experience of Jesus' love for us. And our response to that love, you guys, 
is whole, this is where brass tacks comes in now. Here comes the concrete stuff. Our response to God's love for us is wholesale, abandoned, surrendered obedience. And that is what Jesus is encapsulating in these two comments, in these two commands, love God and love neighbor. Let's talk about these two commands for a moment. The first and the most important command, Jesus says, is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that is a command taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. This command by the Jews would have been prayed throughout their history twice a day. Jesus would have grown up from a wee little lad. He would have grown up praying this prayer twice a day, reciting what they called the great Shema, the great Shema. Because the command in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 starts, Hear, O Israel. That word hear in our English Bibles is the Hebrew word Shema, Shema. And so they called it the great Shema. And Jesus daily, twice a day, would have prayed, Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel. Now, there's an interesting pattern throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, there's this pattern. When humans disobey and when they sin, the text says that they see something and they take it for themselves. So Eve, in the Garden of Eden, she saw the mango, the pineapple, whatever fruit it was. She saw it. She didn't listen to God, but she saw that it was desirable to make her wise. She believed the lie that it could make her her own queen without a true king. And she took. But throughout the pattern of the Old Testament narratives, when a human resists sin, the text says something along the lines that they, they listened to God. They heard and understood what God was saying. Whether they, whether they understood how it was going to work out or not, they heard, they trusted, and out of that trust came total wholesale obedience. There's actually not a Hebrew word literally translated obey in our English language. There's not a word like what we have for obey in English in Hebrew. They use the word shema, listen, listen. Shema, listen was a command to obey. So shema for Jesus and for all the Jews and for us, when he said this is the most important thing, if you want to concretely manifest my kingdom in the world, shema, shema. Pay attention here. Respond with action. The Shema was commanding whole heart, whole body listening to, and then obedience to God with all of our strength. And that little curious statement, obey God with all of your strength, has always been so disorienting to me. I don't understand what that means. How do you love God with all of your strength? Tim Mackey, one of my professors and friends, the guys over at, at Bible Project, they have done an entire video series. I can't recommend it enough. On this Deuteronomy 6 passage, they go through each of the words. But Tim explains that this word strength, translated strength in our English Bibles, is the Hebrew word meod. And, and it carries a pretty big idea. It's like an exclamation point on what the passage is saying. Let me read for you what Tim says. Interestingly, this is the only place in the Bible meod is translated as strength. Everywhere else, it means very or much. It's an adverb that intensifies the meanings of other words. While it may sound funny to love God with all your strength, meod is to love him with all your muchness. 
Tim's so friggin' brilliant. Muchness, to love God with all of your muchness. That just captures that. This is one of my words in my Hebrew class this week. And I'm like, oh, it's brilliant. Muchness. It means to love God with everything you have, devoting every possibility, every opportunity, and all capacity to honor God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So to concretely, and this doesn't sound concrete, but this is what Jesus gives to us. He says, to build the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, first you need to deeply know and experience yourselves as loved by God, which you are. And the more deeply you believe that, the more the anxiety passes, the more the fear is cast aside, the more the calm, contenting balm of his presence is with you. So you go and you deepen in your experience of God's love for you. And then out of that, with all of your muchness, you go forth and you love God. And that, go forth and love God with all of your muchness for Jesus of Nazareth, that meant listen to what God is saying is good and true and beautiful, and then actively with every bit of your being, obey that. And then he turns a corner here because our active obedience unto God, or vertically, excuse me, has to materialize horizontally in human relationships. Jesus knew that. What the great Shema establishes for us, and Jesus says what's most important is your vertical relationship between God and humans. Love him, obey him, listen to him, even when you don't understand. But know that that vertical love is going to play out horizontally. So what Jesus did is he added this obscure little passage from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And he said this little kind of hidden passage in the midst of this bizarre sacrificial book, it's basically a handbook for Hebrew priests, This is the second most important thing you should emphasize if you want to manifest my kingdom, if you want to multiply shalom. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot love our neighbor without God love, but we also can't love God fully without neighbor love. The two are inseparable from one another. Dear mentor, Dr. Bashirs, he likes to say, Loving God means I inconvenience myself to bring flourishing to my fellow human, especially the ones considered worthless. So what that means for you and I this morning is this. To love God with all of our muchness, I don't know why I want to jump when I say that, but I do, with all of our muchness, to love God with all of our strength is to obey everything that God says about our identities, about sex, about marriage, To love God with all of our muchness is to look to him vertically and obey exactly what he says with what we're supposed to do with our material goods, with our money, with generosity. To love God with all of our muchness is to look to him and see and say and obey and do what he says around alcohol, moderation, drunkenness, modesty. It's to obey him in what we watch, how we work, how we treat our bodies, what we believe. Even with our minds, we are to engage in this muchness with our minds, believing what he says will benefit us, focusing our minds upon that which is honorable and true and just and righteous. And on and on and on the list goes. And we obey God. Please hear this. We obey God in all of these things because every single point of obedience either builds or breaks relationships with others. This is so countercultural, and it's very hard for us to grasp because we swim in this cultural aquarium with two primary ideas. The first one is this. Hey, man, as long as it's not hurting anyone else, it's all good. I can do what I want because I'm not hurting anybody else, right? And the second massive cultural idea that we swim in that 
taints this idea of loving neighbor as self is this, this idea that hedges really towards a complete disregard for others and their opinions about us. And so there's been this rise of the statement, you do you. You do you, I'll do me. And I don't care what you say about me. I don't care what you think about me because I'm authentic and I'm doing me and you do you and, and I ain't hurting you and you ain't hurting me and it's all good, bruh, or whatever. It, that's just, that's what we swim in. And there's real, I want to I say there's real nobility in, in living into you doing you. You have been created uniquely to be you, but this can hedge on a complete and total disregard for others. These cultural expressions when we really strip them down and distill them, they are the absolute antithesis of loving others as ourselves. In God's mind, you can't do you while blatantly disregarding others, especially the others that care for you and love you. You cannot be you apart from a deep, integrated fabric of other yous around you that help shape and form you. We cannot live into or out of the lie that as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, it's fine. Because the truth is, every single decision that you and I make this week, seen and unseen, known and unknown, affects the fabric of humanity around us because we are all created, interconnected one with another as image bearers in this world. And so from God's perspective, when we do what we want, we may not perceive it immediately. We may not feel the effects of it in our general interactions, but our private and our unseen and our individual points of disobedience, when we see and take for ourselves, those points are always working against shalom across human relationships. And every time we choose to obey in private, unseen places, God is generating shalom in relationships that we could never understand how he knits it all together in this kingdom-multiplying, shalom-creating reality called the church and human obedience. So listening to and obeying God Build shalom for ourselves personally, which is what we long for, but it builds shalom across all human interactions. Some concrete examples. Tonight, when you look at porn, that actually is just feeding the industry of abuse. But when you intentionally fight, pray, call out to your accountability partners with all of your muscle, you sit on your hands if you have to, you turn from that moment of looking at porn, you're one step closer to starving that industry out of existence and freeing those that are oppressed by its cruelty. What was done in the privacy of your home either saved or secured the bondage of another human being. To drink in moderation, as we Christians strive for, spares those unfiltered, unmet words that are often spoke when inebriated under the influence of alcohol. When we say the stupid thing that we wish we would have never said to that person and hurt them or embarrass ourselves, but to be drunk, when we drink out of moderation, we actually are under the influence of, as the old people, our old culture used to call it, the spirits, literally spirits. We come under the influence of something that is not ourselves, and we usually awake the night after. We awake the morning after a long night of being under the influence, not with shalom, but with deep regret. This is why we obey. This is why we obey. 
When we practice simplicity and we say, I'm not going to build my identity on material goods and, and what I own or what I do, it not only produces in us a sense of contentment and peace with who we are and how we are and why we are, but it also opens up doors for us to be a non-anxious presence with the people around us. It also opens up doors for us to provide for people around us. It generates shalom when we choose these ways of life rather than giving in to the lie that we are what we own or we are what we do that just feeds the greed monster and is devouring our society all around us. To live in pride causes us to diminish the dignity in the other when we see them, it gives us a false sense of superiority, or I'm over, or I'm better, or I'm more than, which is all just a facade. It's all a fog. It's all a vapor. It's not real. But when we humble ourselves and we see ourselves as the same, of, as, the same as every other human that we interact with, now the fabric of humanity is being knit together in truth, in equality. And God's intent, this is the scandalous nature of Jesus' vision for the world, God's intent is to restore shalom to every single human relationship on this planet. Not just yours with the person you're in conflict with right now, but you with the people on the other side of the planet. Ian this morning brought up the issues with us removing, and I'm not politicizing, nor would I dare, but it was brought up this morning, the removal of the troops and what's happening to the Kurdish people in this moment. You can have whatever opinion you want, but what we need to know is Jesus's vision. Jesus's vision was that we would feel a connection with the oppressed on the other side of the world, and that we'd do the heavy lifting of prayer for them, generating shalom because God's intent through the church and through his prayerful people is to increase and multiply through every relationship on this planet. It's mind-blowing. So in another gospel, Jesus was actually asked by somebody trying to worm out from underneath this, who is my neighbor? Okay, if I'm to love my neighbor as myself, who's my neighbor, Jesus? And in, answer, and in essence, Jesus answered, whoever is in front of you right now, whether on the TV or sitting right next to you in this moment or on the other side of the world that you're hearing about in this moment, whoever is in front of you, with you, in your presence, in your awareness, this is your neighbor, and so God's kingdom vision for human relationships is this, that we would see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family. Loving your neighbor as yourself means that we don't reduce people to a category or a label or somebody on a screen or somebody on the other side of the world. But we as Christians embrace this vision of Jesus that we are interconnected to these humans and we love God, and as we love God, we see God's image reflected in the eyes of every single human. Every human. Our friend next to us this morning is the neighbor we love as ourselves. Students in class tomorrow, we love them as ourselves. The homeless guy, we love as ourselves. The person whose political leanings escape us, we cannot figure out why they think the way they think politically, we love them as ourselves, honoring them as image bearers. The stranger we have no connection with, we love as ourselves. And here's the rub for us as Christians. The enemy that sought our harm, we love as ourselves. Because we, the enemy of God, have been given infinite grace and flourishing by him. So Jesus, with his twofold love God, love neighbor answer, he creates this unique community of people who live into the whole of God's will vertically towards him and horizontally towards others. He captures every category in his summary answer to that question, what should we emphasize? Jesus says, 
Obedience is not only to a set of commands while neglecting fellow human. No, you have to love human as self to obey the commands of God. And the way of Jesus is not only loving humans as self, neglecting the very clear commands of God around our personal behavior. It's a whole, the way of Jesus is a whole encompassing way. And he concluded this teaching saying, all the law and all the prophets hang on these next two commands. And these two commands. Next week, when we get into our first Pillar's teaching on the word will talk about the infinite glory displayed in these intertwined stories throughout the Bible. And Jesus says the whole thing, all of it, Genesis to Revelation and all the history of creation, it's captured right here by these two commands, obeying them. The dual commands to love God and love neighbor, when we live into them moment by moment, though we will fail miserably over and over, there will also be times of great victory over and over. When we live into these intentional moments to align ourselves with God, the result is our lives and this world become what God intends. This crazy vision of perfect harmony between God and man and women, men and women, humans, and humans in creation. And that's our vision. That's our vision, neighbors. To see every tribe, tongue, and nation under the rule of King Jesus. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus. And to point people to him as our only true source of hope. And we need not go out with persuasive language, apologetic finesse, strategic prowess. We just need to go love God and love people. That's the concrete reality of what we're doing. Just love God with all your muchness. And then look at the other person in front of you and recognize that you are looking at an infinitely beautiful creation of which you are intertwined with. That's it, neighbors. It's so simple. And it encompasses everything that God is about for us and for this world and for all these kids on this campus, for San Diego, for all of creation. Jesus believed, as we come to communion this morning, that his life and his death and his resurrection, it made a way for people to know God's love and to love him and to love one another. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and then his eventual ascension unto the right hand of the Father, where he now reigns, And with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Jesus believed that we could actually do this. In part, we could actually bring this into the present moment. His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Never fully, but partially bringing it here while we long for its fullness in the future. Jesus believed that that stemmed from renewed hearts. Us. It starts right here in this room. With this tiny little group of people where we bow our hearts this morning in communion saying... Holy Spirit, come and make me in the image of Jesus. Come and make me a surrendered, listening, obedient human. And as we do that, here's where God's love is expressed to you. He loved us so much that he literally became one with us. He loved us so much that Jesus came and he absorbed everything that you and I had ever done, both in public and in private, on the cross. He absorbed it all into himself 
everything we'd ever done to break relationships and everything that had ever been done to us that broke our hearts and broke our relationships, our God said, I will come and I will endure it. I will come and I will absorb it. I will take their bruises, their beatings, their divisions, their wars, their lies, their manipulations. I will take it all into myself. And what those things reap, the fruit of our wars and our jealousy and our envy and our pride and our kingdom building, the fruit of that, the death that that produces, our God said, I will take it into myself. And then I will conquer it by resurrecting. And I will place those in me who say, I surrender to you as my answer for shalom. I surrender to you as my king. Jesus came and in our place, he loved his friends and his enemies and you, not only as himself, but beyond himself. He laid down his life in our place to bring us back to God and ultimately to each other. 